This show is brought to you by earpeeler.com. What's up, everybody? This is John Bush from Armored Saint, and you are cranking it up. Okay, what's up, everybody? This is Ross the Boss. Hey there, this is Joey Vera from Armored Saints, and you are listening to Mars Attack. This is Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein of Doyle, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what do you say? Be careful, because Mars Attacks. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Winnorp of Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what's happening? This is Tommy Victor from Prong and Danzig. Hey, all here's Andrea Kitter from Sepultura and De La Tierra, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Enjoy. Yo, what's up? This is Frank Fellow from Anthrax, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Turn it up! Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Stilter, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Hello, everybody. This is Max Cavalera, Soulfly. You're listening to Mars Attacks. Stay metal. Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. This is Carl Kennedy from The Rods, and you listen to that crazy bastard Victor on Mars Attack. Welcome, one and all, to episode 138 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And we are back after a small week off there. Uh, Unfortunately, health issues have been creeping up my way these last few weeks, and um, hopefully we can get over that hump. Um, As opposed to what happened a few years back, I hope to try and power through all this instead of taking a... Uh, instead of taking time off like I did back then, but uh, we'll see. Got plenty of interviews to put out, as you guys have heard over the last few interviews that I've done. This time around, we have a brand new interview with Richard Christie of Charred Walls of the Damned. And from the archives, we have Carl Kennedy of The Rods. And this interview with Carl was originally conducted August of 2015, and for people that are just jumping on the show for the first time or haven't listened in a while, what I've been doing with these archived interviews, uh, they're interviews that I haven't put out previously, and I'm just putting them out now. So it isn't something where these interviews are being revisited. This is the first time that they're being released to the general public, so uh, they're still pretty cool nonetheless. Um, I still have quite a few of these to put out. There are some that I have to do uh, some heavy editing with. It's no big deal. Uh, there are some that just may not come out as a result. We'll see. Uh, in any event, uh, the interview with Carl is pretty cool. It is um, a continuation of what we did with him last year with the Classic Albums series. Uh, when editing this interview, I went back and and noticed all the cool stuff that uh, that I'd talked to him about for the Classic Album series. And if you're not familiar with that series in particular, uh, you can find it easily right on the homepage of MarsAttacksRadio.com, where you can find both a, um, a carousel, I guess it's called. You can see the images going across uh, left to right 
with all the classic album series also on the right hand side there's a category pull down you can click on classic albums column and you'll be able to both read comments that people have submitted or check out podcast episodes where it's people commenting on these various albums. Uh, so with Carl, he talked about ACDC's Back in Black, Ozzy's Blizzard of Oz, uh, the self-titled Kiss debut, Led Zeppelin IV. He talked about Anthrax that was included in the Sound of White Noise episode uh, because he did produce uh, Spreading the Disease and I'm just going off the top of my head here. I'm not sure if he did um, the Armed and Dangerous or the Fistful of Metal. No, I believe he did do that because one of the other interviews was with Ross the Boss. And Ross the Boss claims to have done their first single and Carl did the album. So, yeah. Um, so we sort of shoehorn that in with the Sound of White Noise discussion. But it's still all about Anthrax. Uh, anyway, he also talked about Twisted Sisters' Stay Hungry and Overkill's Taking Over, which is another band that he was involved with from a producer standpoint. So I don't know, I really enjoyed listening back to this interview. Hopefully you guys enjoyed as well. And with Richard, this is his second time on the show. Uh, this is... Actually, I was looking at the dates. Last time I spoke to him was for... Um, the previous Charred Walls of the Damned album. So it was five years ago. And he also spoke about Stay Hungry. We used that. And next year you'll hear him with some comments on a band that he's always... I mean, I don't think it's fair to say pigeonholed. I, I sort of brought this up during the interview and you'll hear it. You'll hear him talk about death. So the classic album series will be back as of january at least that is the plan and from there we will um, be releasing one of those per month as the original idea and this is the final 12 that we had started doing wow um we haven't done any this year if i remember correctly or maybe we did one earlier in the year but the idea was to do a three-year run with all these coming out back to back and it's been way past three years so some of the, some of the comments were recorded quite a few years ago uh, but I think they're still pertinent because it's people talking about albums they enjoy do not enjoy or are indifferent about or in some cases people say well you know that's a cool album but I prefer this one or with the example of Carl candidate uh he talks about bands that he was involved with involved with from a producer standpoint so nonetheless check out that series that is something that i get quite a bit of feedback for probably the most feedback they're also the most difficult shows to put together just to sort of line things up so i'm actually setting things up now uh with people to do interviews so that I can get their comments um, ready and edited and everything else for, you know, the beginning of next year. So there you have it. If you do enjoy the Classic Album Series or enjoy anything else about the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let other people know about what we have going on here with um, Mars Attacks. Also, check us out on social media. We have Facebook, Twitter... Tumblr, 
G+. You can go to MarsAttacksRadio.com, and there are links to that at the top and the bottom of the homepage, so you can just click on icons for any of those great social media sites, and you'll be taken directly to where you can go, like us, or discuss any topic that you hear us bring up during the show. You hear me bring up, I always... I don't want to be like one of these people that speak in the third person, but since it is a show, since I, you know, I'm sort of talking to you guys, I sort of feel like I'm, you know, we are talking all amongst each other. So I don't know. Maybe strange, maybe not, whatever. I also want to remind you guys, if you're into any geek-related topics, Star Wars, Game of Thrones, Walking Dead... Marvel, DC, um, Marvel, DC, TV or Cinematic Universe, or just comics, check out my other podcast, which is Galaxy of Geeks. You can find this at galaxyofgeeks.net. You can also, much like Mars Attacks, find this on iTunes, on Stitcher, uh, the Google Plus Store, and if you have any other Android-based um, player that you like to use, you could also uh, check out our RSS feed right at the top of the page as well, and you can subscribe that way if you prefer. I know that there are people out there that don't like using you know, any of the options that I mentioned, so we, we do just have the plain old feed there, so you can piggyback off of that and listen to whatever you'd like. Uh, also, check out Earpeeler.com. Earpeeler.com is my interview and podcasting news site uh, where I update on a regular basis. I draw from uh, 740 feeds at the moment and take that, filter it, and add interviews or gear reviews or different things that I think are interesting that people might you know, want to check out that's similar to a, a podcast. Um, again, I'm adding new content all the time. Uh, we have a merch store there. Please help us out. We actually have a merch store here and on Galaxy of Geeks as well. We have different affiliates that we work with. Would be uh, very appreciative if you could check any of those affiliates out. Any clicks to them, help us out. Um, anything that you want to purchase. Via Amazon, I know everyone has Amazon links. Um, if, you, if you are so inclined to click on the Amazon links, either here on MarsAttacksRadio.com, on GalaxyOfGeeks.net, or EarPeeler.com, it, it is very much appreciated. Not going to bullshit you guys and give you a sob story. You know, um, again, I've mentioned this a bunch of times where people that are making six figures a year or even five figures uh, off of just podcasting where they're, you know, uh, saying that they they will no longer do their show if you don't click on their ads. Uh, I'm not going to say that. And <laughs> to them, 50 grand is a drop in a bucket. To me, every penny counts. So <laughs> there you go. Um, I watched a, a interview with someone earlier this week. It, it was it was rather interesting. I commented about this on Facebook and on the page where I found 
the interview. They, they didn't post my comments. But basically, it was somebody talking about a, a new service, or I don't know how old the service is, to be quite honest. They're, it's a British company. And they were talking about how, you know, podcasting is the new way to make all of this money. That 63% of all people that click on ads, you know, drive revenue to, to your sites. And they're going on this whole, like, thing about how you can monetize a podcast, how you can do this, how you can do that. And then they start talking about examples of, you know, people that are making a huge amount of money or whatever, making money off of their podcast. And the first example is based on a, a musician who was on the label Universal. They're backed by Universal. Universal is putting this podcast out. It isn't like myself or anyone else that is out there independently doing a podcast. Universal has millions of dollars to throw at this podcast to to get it out there and make it popular. They also make an example of of an a podcast that Andy Townsend has. If you don't know who Andy Townsend Townsend is, he's a British sportscaster. He does um play by play for the English Premiership, the World Cup. He's in every fucking version of FIFA, uh, of the FIFA soccer game that has been out, or football game, depending on where you are. Um, for what? The last, <laughs> since the last century, since, <laughs> since the fucking 90s. Come on. These people have a built-in fucking fan base you can't compare what they monetize with something that maybe i would monetize you can't that's like saying okay well people that listen to chris jericho's podcast are buying his shit no kidding he's got like two million fucking people that know him give me a break you can't compare that to somebody who's just starting a podcast from scratch it is a joke it is your modern day version of a snake oil salesman, which is what I put on Facebook, who's trying to sell you their fucking elixir saying, oh, well, if you drink this, all of a sudden you're going to be able to make a million dollars. Fuck you. No, you can't. Okay? I can't tell you how many people have come to me and they've gone away with you know, they, they've come and they, they've thought that they were the ones that were going to make from scratch a million dollars off of podcasting, okay? There's a very well-known, there are two very well-known um, people that do a wrestling podcast, per se. It is a weekend show that's bro- broken up on several uh, different things. It's called Chair Shot Reality, and... I invited the the original two hosts years ago to come on um, to come on this show to talk about wrestling themes and whatnot. And the first thing that they turned to me and asked about was, "Oh, well, how much money can you know? We're thinking about doing a podcast, and we think we can make this much money." And blah 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 blah. And I said, "Don't go into it thinking that you're gonna make money. It'll help expand your audience." But you're not going to be making a ton of money. It is a long 
road. It is a lot of hard work, and it is spending a lot of money to make this happen. I'm not trying to fool anybody. This is the facts, okay? That is how it is. They got pissed off at me for saying that, and one of them even went as far as saying, please forget my email address. You know, I no longer need to discuss anything with you or some shit like that, okay? I've talked to I don't know how many musicians that have said, oh, I'm going to start a podcast because it looks like there's so much money and there's this and there's that. Okay, Jamie Josta, for example, who has an established band, Hatebreed, that was around for how long before he got a Headbangers Ball gig? Okay, take that into consideration. He took that audience from both of those ventures and then had a company come to him to who's cold-cocked whiskey pay him to do the fucking podcast. People that have shows on Podcast One are being paid by Podcast One, okay? That is the fact. If you have outside ventures that make you popular, it it is a huge launching pad to open the doors to ads and revenues and different things, okay? During this video chat or, or this this presentation, they talk about Midroll. Midroll is a company that, yeah, pays a lot of money out, but if you don't show them immediate results, they dump your ass, okay? You have a very short window of opportunity to bring them thousands, if not millions of clicks on their ads. If not, they're done with you, okay? So, Think of it this way. If Chris Jericho, for example, has 2 million people that he knows, maybe there are, I don't know, let's let's say there are 100,000 people to 200,000 people listening to his show. I don't know. I'm just pulling numbers out of the air. It could quite possibly be a lot more than that. But But I'm just trying to trying to express this idea. If he's got that many people listening, 1% of the people that are listening to him are purchasing something from him from his podcast. Okay? That isn't millions of dollars worth of people. Okay? So the way that this whole video was explained, it seemed like, oh, this is going to be just so easy for you guys to just make all of this money. And it's not true. Hard work, a lot of determination, a lot of hours, and spending a lot of money is what makes a successful podcast. Unfortunately, I've been doing this for over seven years, and that's what it's taken me so far. I can tell you that 90 people that do podcasts, it is the same exact story, okay? The 5% that make the money are the Jamie Jostas, are the Chris Jerichos, are the Eddie Trunks. There are people that have had established audiences that are looking for more material. And, and not only that, but the names involved and others that are out there. I mean, I'm just singling these three out. Put on entertaining shows. If your show sucks, 
no one will listen. Okay? Does not matter how big of a name you are. There, there are plenty of artists that I've come across again that have said, oh, well, you know, I'm going to make this much money or I'm going to do this with podcasting. You don't know what I can do. And I've seen a lot of them come along, try it, and fold after a few months because that money stream is not there and because their shows suck. Once they finish talking about me, 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 nobody wants to hear anything. They're not interviewing anybody. They're, they're not, I mean, they're not bringing anything different to the table where Justa does these kick-ass interviews. I've said it a million times. He, he gets things out of people that no other interviews do, no other interviewers do. Um, same thing with Jericho. Jericho, you know, for, for the love-hate relationship that I have with some of his, his shows or whatever... He, I would say that 90% of the time he puts out really interesting content with, with different people in the wrestling industry or even in the music industry. Why? Because he's a wrestler, because he's a musician, and because he has nothing to lose when asking uh, or talking to these people where other people just want to throw out these softball questions because they're, they're scared of having, you know, the... the door shut and they're not allowed to have access to somebody anymore to a label or PR person's artist or whatever there, there's a definite difference that you can you you can definitely um, uh, see <laughs> for lack of a better term so anyway that's that, that's that's my rambling for today um, podcasting isn't easy it is easy if you love doing it if you find it to be fun um do it there there's a million of us doing this obviously and the internet allows you for better or for worse to do it uh there's more than one person i'm sure that's out there listening to this and saying shut the fuck up who cares but there are others that enjoy hearing me say this stuff so um in any event I do appreciate any type of feedback. I do appreciate you guys listening, man. I've, I say it at the end of the show because it is truly great to hear people say that they dig different things or that, um, or that something was on their mind as well. So, again, if you want to drop us a line, do so via Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Mars Attacks Radio or MarsAttacksRadio.com. Um, you can also send us a email directly to um, input at marsattacksradio.com. Sorry about that brain fart. But uh, anyway, uh, let's get into some charred walls of the damned here. And we're going to jump into the interview with Richard Christie right after that. This album, you'll hear me talk about it. During the interview, it is definitely the most melodic, the most straightforward metal uh, album that he's released, in my opinion. And I don't think that's bad at all. I mean, I really enjoyed this album. It is a little under 40 minutes long. 
it's got some really cool material on it. Not saying that just because Richard is coming on the show, but um, I don't know. I, I like it. There you go. So let's get into the leadoff track from the album. This is called My Eyes. We'll hear a little sample of this before jumping on into the interview with Richard Christie. Pittman a few days ago and mm-hmm. um, got to talk to him about his new album, which you actually played on. And one of the things that I asked Monty, I said, was there anything that when you received the finished tracks back from Richard that um, that sort of freaked you out or made you say, oh, shit. And his reaction was, yes, Richard's playing made me up my game because my guitar parts were not up to the standard of Richard's playing. Um, Wow. What was it like for you to not only work on Monty's project, but to take his demos and make them your own? Uh, Well, it was an honor. I love Monty. Monty, That's so nice that he said that. I mean, his guitar parts were incredible. I think he was, uh, you know, just be a little kind of nice to me there, but his, his uh, guitar parts, trust me, they were already incredible. So uh, it was uh, it was a blast to play on that. I mean, it was you know it was a challenge for me because there's a lot of really fast stuff, um, you know, because he had programmed the demos and uh, he programmed some pretty fast drums, and I had to keep up. And it was uh, I had to do a lot of rehearsing to be able to to play a lot of that. And you know, it's fun too when you play on you know i tried to kind of keep the drums close to what he had on the demos just because that was you know his ideas and his vision and it's fun when you it's fun when you play uh drums on something that was programmed by a non-drummer because it causes you to play different than you normally would and it was uh it was cool for me to learn that way 
Um, and I've done that on a few albums before where, where somebody that, uh, you know, doesn't normally play drums program something. And, and it's cool because they don't kind of think like a drummer, which is good. And it's, it, it causes me to kind of up my game and, and play in a different way. So it was, it was challenging. It was a lot of fun. And then when Monty, told me that Billy Sheehan was playing on a tune. He sent me a video of uh, Billy Sheehan playing bass in the studio. I was like, oh my gosh, if I was, you know, I wish I could go back when I was 12 years old and tell myself, hey, one day you'd be on an album with Billy Sheehan. I would never have believed it. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Um, a lot of naysayers actually criticize Monty about playing with Madonna and, say, Nuno Betancourt, playing with... Um, with Rihanna, for example, but a lot of times, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I would exactly equate it to what you're doing with Howard, but I mean, there isn't an exact parallel, but at the same time, there are certain parallels there where you're, you're actually working with a musician that helps you actually mm -hmm. fund the other projects that you're, you're involved with. So do you think it's fair for people to criticize either one of them? No, not at all. I think it's awesome that they they have the opportunity to do that. I mean, who who wouldn't want to get up on stage in front of 50,000 people and play and, <laughs> and to be able to make a pretty good living at it, you know? Right. And, and, you know, it doesn't make you any less of a metalhead or anything. It's just, you know, another – it's good to have an open mind musically, and I, I totally support what they're doing. Um, and and – you know, music, it's not easy to kind of get by in music. And if you can get a, a good gig, I don't see any reason why anybody should turn down any gig, you know? Um, right. And, you know, and if you're able to make a living just playing metal like the Metallica guys, then that's incredible. But it's not everybody can do that. It's not easy to do. So, um, you know, and also it, it's like Madonna is an amazing musician. So to, you know, it helps you as a musician as well. And I'm sure Nuno Bencourt, you know, it helps him as a musician playing with Rihanna because he's playing stuff that's kind of out of his normal elements. So, um, yeah, just like you said, it's great to, to have that, you know, opportunity to make a living at it and play in front of that many people and still be able to do other music that you love as well. Absolutely. And, the last time we spoke, and this has been well documented in, in other interviews you've done as well, you talked about working with Ice Earth and being an electrician at the same time. A lot of people don't realize that that's more of the standard as opposed to, as you mentioned, being Metallica and being able mm -hmm. just to focus on metal. Yeah, totally. I remember it was funny. I did an interview recently with a uh, magazine in Brazil and the guy was like shocked that I would admit that I, when I was a musician, I had to have a day job. I was like, well, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, that's kind of life. Uh, yeah. I guess, you know, maybe it's, it's, it would be a little cooler to say, oh, yeah, I just, you know, I just did, you know, just was concentrating on my music. But that's not always possible. Uh, you got to pay the bills. And, you know... <laughs> If you're a true metalhead, you play metal just because you love it, not because you're trying to make a living off of it, which is, you know, that's a nice yeah. bonus if you can. But, 
the reason I do charred walls with a band is not because I'm expecting to sell a million albums. It's because I just love playing heavy metal, and I'm thankful that Metal Blade has given me the opportunity to to be able to go into a studio and make an album and, and to get it out there for people. That's like a dream come true for me, and I, I'm so thankful to Brian Slagle and Metal Blade for that. And I'm doing it because of my love of metal, not because... Not for really any other reason. I mean, it'd be great to to sell a lot of albums and to be able to keep doing this. But you know, I'm I'm not doing it for money or for any other thing like that. I'm doing it just because I love making heavy metal and playing heavy metal with my friends. Very cool. And working on Monty's project, um, does that open the doors for you to do that with more people, or is that sort of a one-time deal? It's, uh, you know, it's it's kind of, I just have to play it by ear. It's most likely kind of a one-time deal because, you know, Monty's on Metal Blade and Monty and Brian Slagle asked me and I was like, well, yeah, of course, you know, for those guys, I'll, I'll do anything. And I'd love to be able to do more of that. It's just, it, finding the time is just hard at, at this point, you know, because I have my regular job and then I'll, also with Charred Walls of the Damned. Uh, I'm constantly writing music for them and uh, you know I write an article for Decibel magazine I, I just got a lot of stuff going on um, so if you know if the right opportunity came along and somebody asked I, I'd still definitely be into it but most likely you know I have to kind of be very very uh, uh, kind of pick and choose which projects I'm able to, to work work on just because it's hard to find the time Okay. And, I mean, we've talked at length uh, about working with Monty. You've also worked on the great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze, and you worked with Jason um, Swakoff also on uh, Majestic Loincloth. How do all these outlets help Charred Walls of the Dam? Does it help you try to sort of bring different pieces to what you're doing with Charred Walls, or is it more of a release uh, that's completely different to what you're getting out of charred walls. Um, I mean, it definitely helps because sometimes, you know, when I'm writing something for something else, it'll help inspire. Maybe I'll have a little keyboard thing that I'll play, and and then I'll think, wow, that would be a cool charred walls song or something. And then you know, I'll use it for charred walls. So. Anytime I write, I'm able to write music and do some kind of project writing music. I think it helps Charred Walls because, you know, it 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 keeps me, uh, you know, as a musician, it it, it keeps me uh, in shape musically, and, and it, sometimes it inspires something that will lead to like a Charred Walls song. So, yeah, I think it definitely helps, and it's just fun to do. Anytime I, I have a an opportunity to do something a little different musically, like writing synthesizer music and orchestral music for the great jack-o'-lantern blaze in uh, westchester new york that's it's fun because that's another musical outlet for me because i'm a huge uh you know horror soundtrack fan a huge fan of <laughs> 70s and 80s synthesizer music like john carpenter or tangerine dream so i just right. love doing that and and you know like there's a little uh kind of a synthesizer intro to this album and that was just kind of inspired by John, my love of John Carpenter and also, you know, kind of sprang forth from just my love of playing synthesizer and doing things like uh, the great Jack-O-Lantern Blaze. Awesome. 
And when I saw the video for Soulless, well, the the promo video that was put out by the label, the mm-hmm. first thing that came to mind, because I made the mistake to to scroll down and see some of the comments on YouTube, is just how asinine people can be. <laughs> some some of the first comments, it just started comparing everything to death and comparing Tim to to Chuck and everything else. And and my first thought was, can people realize that Chuck was very unique and no one is ever going to be Chuck Schuldiner ever, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, regardless, you know, who they are. And also with your projects, obviously Charred Walls isn't death. Obviously other projects that you've been involved in aren't death. Everything you do does not have to be compared to death. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, you know, death is definitely an influence on me. Even if I would have never been in the band, I'm a huge fan. And uh, and I've been a fan of death since I was in high school. And the Human album, Death Human, is like drumming-wise is probably my biggest influence drumming-wise. Um, so naturally, my you know, Charred Walls is going to have a death influence, but they're also going to have, uh, you know, an Iced Earth influence because uh, Tim and Steve and I also played in Iced Earth. But I think we've developed our own sound, and we, uh, you know, between the four of us, uh, me, Jason, Tim, and Steve, we kind of take all of our experiences and all our influences and meld them together. And I think Charred Walls stand stands on its own, and. Uh, you know, it's um, it's definitely you're gonna hear, you know, little bits of other things that we've played on, but I don't think that's a bad thing. It's like a tribute. You, you know, I'm so proud of everything that I played on. Right, great point. <laughs> um, what determines when you do a Charred Walls album? Is it having enough material, or just having the time to sit down and make the album? Um, you know, usually it's, we'll just do it once I have the exact amount of songs written for an album. Uh, for this one, we decided to take a little more time just because, uh, you know, Jason's been really busy with Audio Hammer Studios, and Steve's been playing with uh, the Death Doll, the Death Tribute Band, and Testament, and Tim Owens has been, uh, you know, he did Beyond Fear and also did Dio Disciples. He's been touring a lot, so... We just took a little bit more time, and I wrote way more songs than we would need this time, and then just so we could kind of pick and choose the nine best songs. Uh, I've always wanted to do that, but never had the luxury of having the time to do that. And uh, thankfully, Brian Slagle, you know, he he's really super cool and super easy going, and gave us as much time as we needed. And uh, you know, I wrote about 24 songs, and we picked the best nine, and I think uh, the songs are amazing on this album. So, given that you or that you wrote twenty four songs, is is there a chance that we'll see creatures watching over the living anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know there are some songs that I really, really love that we just had didn't have room on this album for. That uh, you know, so we got kind of a head start for the next album. So I, I doubt it's going to take another five years. But uh, you know, there's at least two or three songs out of that bunch that I wrote that I really, really like, and I was like when we chose these songs, I was like, well, we can just, you know, we can have some for the next album too. So, um, I, I think we got a really good start on the next album already. With regards to this album, it's 
a lot more melodic and a lot more straightforward than the previous two albums by Charred Walls. Was that by design, uh, or did it just come come out that way when you were writing the album? I think it just happens. You know, I never really kind of set out to say, oh, this one's going to be, you know, catchier and more melodic. I, I mean, I'm always hoping each album is going to be better than the last, but it's just kind of a chance, and it's, I think a lot of that comes, too, from just us having taking more time to make this album and spending, you know, since it's a little bit shorter of an album than the last one. It's about the same length as the first album. I think we were able to concentrate on each song more and just make them really good songs and put a lot of melody into them. You know, Jason spent a ton of time on the guitars, so he made the uh, the guitars just sound amazing. So I think it just kind of happened, and I'm I'm glad it happened that way. Very cool. And obviously Steve and Jason are known for both producing and playing in a lot of, well, you mentioned a, a ton of bands that Steve has been involved in. Um, this is much more melodic uh, than what he's known for. It's much more, not that much more melodic than maybe what Jason is known for. But was there any type of convincing to play uh, a certain way on this album? Or did they take the material and sort of make it their own, make it, you know, their signature sound? Oh, yeah, everybody. I tell everybody. I'm so easy going with the songwriting that I just say, hey, take this and make it your own and put your own sound on it, whatever ideas you have. I'm open to hearing them. And, uh, you know, let's just, I just want everybody in the band to be really happy with the songs. And the best way to do that is just kind of let everybody do their thing. Um, you know, but at the same time, they they see the vision for each song and they hear the demos. So, um, you know, it's a blend of kind of knowing what the sound that I had in my mind what I was going for, but also putting their own stamp on it. And, you know, Tim does some amazing, like, growls. They go into screams on this album. So it's cool that it's, you know, it's a little different than what Tim normally does as well. In a perfect world, if you were able to put a chart wall show together, uh, given that you have three albums worth of material out right now, would you just pull from those albums or would you throw covers in there like you have in the past? Uh, maybe one cover or something like Grim Reaper, See You in Hell, we've done live, which people love. Um, but probably mostly our material. Um, and, you know, I, I've always wanted to do kind of a thing where, you know, have the fans vote on which songs they like to hear most, because that's how you can kind of get a good gauge and get a good idea of, of what the fans want to hear. So um, it would definitely be mostly our stuff. But, yeah, we might throw a cover in there, too, maybe Grim Reaper, See You in Hell, or or Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell, or something fun like that. Okay. And in the past, you've always talked up all the other drummers that have been in death. Um, are there any modern drummers that you look to for inspiration? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, like Tim Young, I'm a huge fan of, who was just on tour with Morbid Angel. Um, George Kalias from Nile is an incredible drummer that I love listening to him. Uh, you know, there's a ton of them. There's a lot of really amazing drummers that are out now. And, uh, yeah, I'm always trying to check out new drummers. There's drummers on YouTube that like, there's a guy that plays drums to super Mario brothers songs and stuff <laughs> like that. And it's pretty amazing. 
uh, and he does like the Simpsons theme and a lot of stuff like that. I love that kind of stuff. So, uh, yeah, definitely. I'm always, always looking to the to newer drummers too. Okay, cool. And where should people go to keep up with Charred Walls of the Damned? Uh, you can go to richardchristie.com or, uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at CWOTD and metalblade.com as well. And Hey, this is Richard Christie from the band Charred Walls of the Damned on Metal Blade Records, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. album creatures watching over the dead if you enjoyed that or my eyes please go and use the amazon links which are in the show notes of this episode and click on the album to check it out also we will have the monty Pittman album uh, which richard just uh, worked on as well and the name of that album is I don't remember it, and I fucked it up when I was interviewing him, so I want to make sure that I have the right name. It is Inverted Grasp of Balance. There you go. So, um, another thing that I wanted to talk about real quickly with Earpeeler. Uh, we're going to be making a change with the site. Due to laws that have just been passed, uh, you're going to see a considerable amount of written interviews disappear. They'll be faded out or they'll be, they, they won't be posted as frequently except from sources that, um, sources from people that I actually know more or less. Uh, laws have just changed in Europe and they're looking to change this around the world uh, because journalism is, is dying for the most part. And a lot of newspapers, what they're doing is they're drawing 
from different sources. And in the past, if you used less than 300 words from an article, uh, you did not have to pay anything for that source. In my case with Ear Peeler, um, I'm using around 300 usually, and I'm doing that to push you know, visitors to that site to read you know, the entire article. Well, the European Union has decided that the original person that uh, put that article together should be compensated every time a piece, no matter how small of their article is used, they should be compensated. As a result, to avoid any type of, you know, uh, any... Uh, to avoid having to pay anyone a ridiculous amount of money, we're unfortunately going to have to stop uh, posting written interviews. Uh, I don't want to do that, but I really have no choice because, again, I can't afford to pay, you know, thousands upon thousands to just post, um, you know, articles that, although great, I can't afford to post. That, that's the bottom line. It comes down to economics. So, uh, anyway, enough of that. Um, uh, let's move along to the Carl Kennedy uh, part of the interview. And obviously, we, we are going to talk to him about his solo album, The Headbanger. But we also talked to him about working with Veronica Freeman from Benedictum uh, live with the Rods. And there's a track that they went on to record with her, which is called Smoke on the Horizon. So let's check that song out, and then we're going to jump right on into the interview with Carl Kennedy.
differentiate what you want to present to the rods and what you knew you wanted to include on that solo album? Uh, you know, it was the criteria for that album was I really wanted it to be songs that I had written 100% lyrics, music, and arranged. So I wanted it to be 100% my uh, and melodies, everything mine, 100%. Um, so that was important to me. There were also a couple of songs I wanted to re-record, but we had a publishing deal with MCA, so I just wanted, the other part of that was I wanted to own it completely and make sure no publishing was, you know, belonged to anyone. So I controlled and owned everything. So that was, that was a big part of it. Um, and the other part was just the fact that um, I wanted to do some songs I had had and they were just reworkings of a couple of things I had done and just wanted to approach them a little bit differently. And uh, some were songs that I just didn't think would fit with the rods. Like no one walks away. Uh, Mad Men, you know, I just thought uh, Mad Men was, you know, on the vengeance album, but I wanted to rework that, that song. But so it was really that it was just kind of, you know, taking those songs a little bit of, different direction and um, but I don't think it strays too far from where the rods are but it's definitely slightly different it's interesting what you just explained to me about wanting to rework the music I know that a lot of fans get sort of uptight when bands want to do things of that nature Um, what I found interesting sort of researching you and uh, just different things that I had read in your bio was how you had learned uh, or that one of your instructors was for example um, Carmine Apice and to me people that learn how to play the instrument a lot of times can appreciate you know wanting to rework things wanting to maybe add more orchestration to things like sort of step outside of uh, how things are within rock or within metal and sort of see things differently where a lot of fans can't appreciate that. Do you feel that as being a musician that has studied uh, music, that that actually lends itself to you wanting to rework things or, or try to take things in a different direction? I think it's, um, I think people have been surprised. And uh, I think it's the same with David. You know, I think people have been surprised because the rods are, you know, we have a saying in the rods, if it's more than three chords, it takes more than five minutes to learn. It's not a good rod song. And, uh, you know, as humorous as that is, you know, there's some truth to that. And as a three-piece band, you know, there's certain things that work really well live. And then there are other things that are more involved or have a larger production or potential for more production and don't necessarily lend themselves to a three-piece band live. And, you know, we're a lot of energy on stage live. So that also makes it so, you know, you can't start out with something that's slow and develops and, has a lot of parts that come in and such with an acoustic guitar or a clean chorus of guitar. So, you know, in that, that regard, sometimes with the rods, you know, you kind of don't bring in those songs, but, um, you know, my, my, uh, I've written a lot of songs, a lot of different styles. I have a ton of, um, albums and CDs and I have them from a lot of different genres of music. So, you know, for me, I can go from a serious XM. I can go from a liquid, um, metal to uh, you know i can go to the, from the 50s station or the 40s station to uh, you know 
deep cuts and whatever. I mean, I, I'm all over the place in terms of that. It's just, uh, so reworking a song just is no big deal for me. If I hear a song that I like or, you know, want to rework something, it's just, uh, it's an easy thing for me to look at. In fact, I find it challenging sometimes, you know. Okay. Uh, you worked with Kickstarter for this album. Uh, what was that experience like to you? And, and based on the, the experience that you did garner from using them, do you see that crowdfunding is without a doubt the future of the music industry? I would say from my experience in, in this, I did this because I wanted to really do a great package. And as an independent artist, it's very expensive. And, and the odds of really recouping your money, you know, is pretty slim. <clears throat> so when you're doing a, you know, self-release. I think with regard to bands, whether they have a label and they, they do their own album and they do crowdfunding as well and they have an advance from a label, the advances, especially for metal, are small. So what you're looking at is a situation where for bands, it's a big plus to have that that extra support financially um so i think it's important for that i think it's a, it's a big big help um keeping bands going and uh, you know there's also it allows the fans to be involved from the ground floor because they're being offered things as fans for coming in early that they wouldn't normally have access to so you know that's a big plus for a fan who's a you know a diehard fan of a group so i definitely see the value in it it was a good experience for me and, uh, you know, I would consider using it again as well. Okay. And what is your opinion on a lot of albums being available for streaming from these various streaming sites? Do you think it's fair to um, musicians, the, the rates that are being paid well, out? Do you... I, I mean, I see our royalties, and, you know, it's the, like an attorney was discussing um, something with an attorney at Sony, and uh, she said, you know, it's it's amazing some of the things I see for the large artists and just the Dead Sea Scrolls of royalty statements. And then at the end of it, a pittance, you know, <laughs> in terms of, you know, like we're talking like fractions of a penny, you know, for a performance to some of these these sites. So I think streaming is fantastic, and I love the whole idea. I don't love the idea that artists aren't compensated in some way um, properly, for their music by the same token I, as a fan and a consumer the other side of that i think is true as well because i know as a fan when i was buying uh, cds and, and buying albums that they were reaching a point where they were just you know you're buying this product and it's so expensive you know especially when you're young and you just don't have a ton of money to go on you want to buy a lot of music but you can't afford to buy a lot of music so you're plopping down you know your 14 bucks for a CD, and then you, you realize it's just, you know, a couple songs you like, and the rest of it's crap. So, on the other hand, you know, I think there was a point where I was feeling jaded as a, as a uh, consumer, that, you know, I'm getting ripped off. It's one thing if you charge, charge me 7 or $8 for that product, and, you know, it was a mediocre product. Well, that's fine, that supported the artist, but when you're really kind of what I felt was gouging me, um, and then you're not giving me this incredible product, you know, like if I'm paying... 14 or $15 for a CD, then I want my Back in Black album. I want a greatest hit CD. And, uh, you know, and some bands deliver that, but not every band does deliver that. So I'm all for streaming, uh, you know, and I think that the services are great, but I think the artists should be compensated more fairly 
and hopefully that's you know water seeks its own level in that regard. I hope that it, you know there's a way to uh, keep it affordable for fans and yet compensate artists a little more fairly. Is there an album or a specific producer that you listened to early on that made you want to become a producer, or was it something that you experienced recording with the Rods that made you want to produce? I had always been involved in recording, you know, I'd always been interested in that. So from the early days with actually getting um, my girlfriend who was at Elmira College to check out a mono tape recorder for me and then, and another friend checking out another mono tape recorder and just bouncing them and, and back and forth. I mean, it always been involved in just, you know, curious about sounds and recording. And then I'd always had an affinity for arrangements. So... And, you know, I started playing guitar shortly after I started playing drums. So I was just always fascinated with arrangements and involved in that with every band I'd been in. So um, when we got to the studio, particularly with this band, Kowakis, which just has a re-release uh, out now. We just put it out a few months ago uh, of all of our recordings, an album we gave them and the two singles. But um, I had three songs that I had written for that album, and we all kind of produced our own our own songs on that album and so that was really my first in the studio let's be a producer kind of thing but it was a natural fit for me and then with the rods David and I were really the guys in the studio you know and I'd help him he'd help me and that was kind of how it went from there I mean we really it just evolved basically because no one had the money for a producer or even knew what a real producer was in fact in the early days we didn't even know that that's what producing was we just knew that, you know, you had to do this, this, and this to make it happen. Is it harder for you to be critical with your own work, or is it easier for you to be critical of other people's work? Um, it was definitely difficult for my things, for my album. I never really, the thing I experienced in doing my own album was the pieces were coming from different places because of the internet you know you can send things and just dropbox them and file sharing so pieces of the the album were coming in like rosanna galva played bass in brazil and uh, you know file shared it to me so um, you know it was just done some of the parts just kind of came in so i was the only one who really knew where the album was going and as producer obviously that was my job but there were points where I had a lot of self-doubt, which I'd never experienced before as a producer. You know, I'd always been like, okay, I see where we're going. I hear the music before we start, and I know where we need to go, and kind of guide it there as best you can and all that. But, you know, with my, with my stuff, it was tough, and it was tough not having somebody to go, yeah, that just sucks, or yeah, that's great. You know, there was, you know, I had to ask myself those questions, and it's way too subjective. So it was really a surprise for me to have that happen, and at one point, I was talking with, uh, you know, Rob Reiner, and uh, I was telling him I was struggling with my life my way. Every day, I'm going in and I'm trying to record the track, and I'm just not getting it. You know, he gave me the producer pep talk of, you know, you got to be true to yourself, and it was what I needed because I went up and knocked out the drum track. But, you know, it was those kind of things that caught me by surprise. When it comes to other bands, you know, I listen to the music, and then I offer suggestions, you know, what be it a suggestion to maybe, you know, write a section that takes you away from what you're kind of hammering a little bit hard here, maybe add a section that takes you away from the song for a minute, 
to set the rest of it up or just a plain out suggestion on what to do with it or a key change or whatever. But it's much easier in terms of that because you're looking at a picture that's already been painted and then you can say, well, you know, we can maybe, maybe we should move the tree over a little bit. You know, it's too close to the water in this picture, but when you're doing it on your own, it's, it was surprisingly tough for me. So it was an interesting experience. And, uh, I have to say I'm not all that eager to go back into that, uh, you know, that situation again. Would you consider doing it with a co-producer? I would. I mean, I absolutely would. And, um, you know, we're working on a new Rods project now, and David and I are working on it, and the three of us, you know, produce the album, and it's just uh, it's much more comfortable. And just having each other's kind of, you know, you know, each of us is invested in the project and has the, you know, the best interest for the project at heart. And uh, so it's easier to work that way. I find that a much more comfortable, uh, fulfilling kind of uh, work environment. Okay. And when you started working on the material that ended up being on the Headbanger, did you have specific musicians in mind? Uh, Did you know what singers you wanted to bring on or what people you wanted to bring on to solo on the tracks? Or did that just sort of evolve as you were recording the album you know i like i did have some ideas but in general i really just kind of um as it went along and approached people and then just said you know here's some songs and check these out and it seemed to be like the right the right fit but you know initially i didn't really have a a big master plan going into it you know I wish I, you know, I would love to sit here and say I had every aspect of it mapped out, but, but in fact, I kind of just said, hey, why don't I just, uh, maybe I'll do a solo album, okay, like, just kind of like, you know, let's build a treehouse, you have any wood, how, who's got nails, you know, it's just kind of fell into place, and, uh, you know, as I went along. Okay, and the Rods have been playing recently with Veronica Freeman, you guys have been doing a bunch of covers, and she's on a track uh, that you guys recently released as well. Mm-hmm. Obviously, um, uh, it's nothing new for you guys to have guests appear on the on albums. You had Ronnie James Dio appear in the past. Um, what's it like to work with Veronica, and how did you initially hook up with her? Well, Gary and Veronica were friends. So Gary's the one who introduced Veronica to us. Um, when she came up and we did warm-up show, I just thought that it would be great to memorialize this with a recording. So I suggested David Smoke on the horizon. And everybody seemed good with that, and uh, we really went in the studio. We did it very, very quickly. But uh, on stage, it was great. I mean, the energy that happens when she, she's such a presence to begin with, and then um, with the voice, you know, you see it with the crowd. They just... You know, just go nuts. And it's just great for us because we all love those songs. We love all the Dio songs. So for us to play them, just a blast at the end of the show. Do you have any plans to do anything else with her in the future? Uh, at the moment, there are no specific plans, but um, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't rule it out. And we had a, you know, it's a great run in Europe. We had a great time. And, the fans loved Walter, and you know, we all became a family. You know, it was it was really nice. Okay. 
And up to now, you hold the distinction of having Ronnie James Dio's very last studio appearance on your album. Uh, what does that mean to you? Um, you know, that, that whole thing is, is such a bittersweet uh, situation in that having known Elf and Rock and Ronnie and Doug and Mickey Lee and Gary Driscoll from the early days when I was, I mean, I, I had known of them when I was maybe 17. I was aware of them coming to the area to high school dances and then playing in a band that rehearsed in the garage and they rehearsed in the house because they had members of my band and mem members of Elf all sharing a home together. So, you know, we hear them, we see the guys and uh, just knowing of the band all those years, you know, from the early start of Elves and Elf. But um, Ronnie coming in to sing, you know, he really hadn't been diagnosed at that time. So this was something that was just exciting and he was doing this. And, you know, I, I really thank Rock because Ronnie was coming in to sing a couple of songs specifically for David and then it turned into doing it for the Rocks. And, you know, David felt that the song The Code was the right fit for one of the songs for Ronnie. So I'm eternally grateful for that. But working with Ronnie and, you know, having him sing a song that I'd written, it was humbling. It's, um, you know, hearing that voice on a song I'd written was you know, the highlight of my career, really. I mean, it's an amazing thing as a songwriter. You know, you just couldn't ask for anything more. So, and But by the same token, them becoming some of the last tracks ever recorded, you know, like I said, bittersweet, because uh, it was never intended that way. And uh, for that to be that way, we weren't aware that he wasn't aware that he was, was ill at that time. So, uh, you know, having heard it and then him passing. And, so it, it's uh, certainly something that, like I said, the highlight of my career and was an honor. And watching him perform in the studio was, David had told me that Ronnie was just a one-take guy, that he didn't just struggle to get things. He just nailed it. And if he did something more than once, it was just to do something different. And it was absolutely the truth. I mean, that's how he did the, the song, both songs. He just uh, nailed them. So I've worked with some great singers and, I have to say he was just so far above any singers I've worked with. And that is in no way disparaging to any of the singers I've worked with because I've worked with great singers. But Ronnie was truly the, the cut above. I mean, the fact that he's a, a legendary singer is uh, you know, not without reason. Okay. And where I grew up in northern New Jersey, where all of you guys are from, is considered upstate New York to us. <laughs> right. um, upstate New York is, is White Plains for you guys, right? <laughs> for a lot of people, yeah. <laughs> um, but obviously, you guys, the Rods, um, Ronnie, a band that you were in for a little bit, Man of War as well, um, were all from the same general area. How did that area help influence the sound that each one of the, these bands or artists achieved you know I, I talk about that periodically with friends you know and we talk about the fact that i think uh, i played with a band big daddy and the duquesnes right out of high school i think i was just 19 and uh, it was or just i was almost 19 and big daddy was a horn band and and big daddy was the singer and he did everything was sly in the family stone chicago 
James Brown, um, you know, and Big Daddy did all the James Brown shtick, you know, the splits, the whole thing. I mean, he was great. And the band was fantastic, you know. They were just a great band. And, and every band that I knew from that area, they were all, we all played the through what we call the three-way circuit. And every band just had incredible musicians. And I, I think what, uh, I don't know specifically that it influenced the sound. Uh, because I think each musician, you know, has their own influences and and sort of uh, listens, absorbs, and reflects them and spits them back out in their own style. But I know that um, the level of musicianship in the central New York area, that upstate New York area, was incredibly high. In order to perform as a band or to be in a band that was actually working, um, you had to be a pretty pretty good musician and a pretty versatile musician and a musician who could adapt quickly and learn lots of different styles because you were playing cover material and you had to change that material on a weekly basis. So it was the proverbial paying your dues. And, uh, and if you wanted to play, you practice because the musicians out there, your competition were really good. So if you didn't put the hours in rehearsing, you just weren't going to cut it. You weren't going to get a gig. At what point did you start to shift from just playing in cover bands to actually starting to play originals? Um, well, I think all the bands I've been in from, you know, the last couple of Kalakas, we did the whole album. We did, a, you know, we all, all we wanted to do was original material. We did covers to survive. When the Rods started, within three months of starting with the Rods, we were in the studio recording our first album. So some of the first tracks you hear on the, the Rods album, including Crank It Up, they were all recorded probably within the first six months of us being together. And, uh, you know, we just, we were going for it. And and uh, so, you know, we had tried. But, you know, with doing original material in a cover band, you just have to sort of, you know, do cover song, cover song, cover song, slip in an original, do a pile of cover songs. And, you know, hope for the best, you know. But, of course, that helps because you start to realize what works and it helps you develop as a songwriter because you see what, oh, this was a nice idea on paper, but, you know, look what happened when we played it live. The crowd went to sleep. Makes complete sense. Well, I guess if, if it didn't turn into a, a Blues Brothers scene there where they started hurling bottles at you guys, I guess that would probably <laughs> You know, it's... It's funny you say that, Victor, because when the launch for Saturday, you know, disco was ending, and uh, you know, in upstate New York, but it was still big, and there were still clubs that were doing disco, and you know, it's like dance music out. It really never went away, but but um, you know, what was called disco and whatever it was. So we were playing these clubs, and we were just basically playing to no one, but playing anywhere we could play. And there was a club in Ithaca, and uh, was it called the um, I can't think of the name, the arcade. And we played, and it was a cool club because it had been the theater, so it had a cool little stage, and the, they'd taken the seats out, but it was still the stadium kind of thing, seating, you know, so you'd sit there with pillows. And so we started playing. By the end of the night, we had literally had driven everyone out of the club, and that was, that was the, the inauspicious beginnings of the band. And, you know, there were moments where you had to rethink, like, wow, I'd gone from a club band that had been playing regionally all over, making, you know, really decent money, playing to pack clubs to, we just drove the few patrons who actually showed up out of the club. 
So, <laughs> you know, when we, ah, yeah, is this going to work for us or not? But uh, fortunately, we hung in there. Okay, and you mentioned before that you're working on a, a new Rods album. Do you have any type of ETA on when people can expect that album to be out? Well, we're just starting now. We're hoping to have it done by, you know, the end of the year. We'd like to have it out by the first quarter of next year. That's our goal. So, but okay. um, yeah, I'm excited about it. This album, David's written entirely, and uh, it's just the first Rods album that's actually happened, but it's a concept album and uh, you know just I love it and I'm very excited about it excellent where should people go to keep up with news regarding you and the rods uh, pretty simple the rods.com this is Carl Kennedy from the rods you're listening to that crazy bastard Victor on Mars Attacks Coming off of Canada, that is the last recording that was released by Ronnie James Dio. There is a talk of there being songs from Magica that were left over and whatnot that may come out at some point. But up to now, that is the last recording that was released. New recording by... uh, new studio recording I should say (laughs) that featured Ronnie James Dio on vocals so there you go 
You can check that out. Once again, that is the off the Canada CD, the Headbanger, the Canada album, excuse me. Came out back in 2014, 2014, however you prefer to say it. Want to thank Benjamin from Online Metal Promo for hooking me up with Carl Canada. Uh, want to also thank John Freeman for setting everything up with Richard Christie. And want to thank you guys once again for listening to the episode. And we're going to end the episode with a track from the, the Headbanger. Um, we played something by the rods, something else with Dio. Let's play the track Cult of the Poisoned Mind off of the Headbanger, off of the Canada album, the Headbanger, I should say. Thanks again for listening, and see you next time right here on the Mars Attacks podcast. See you.
Mars Attacks Podcast. This concludes our show. 